episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. NextQuest Podcast is sponsored by Karen's Therapy and Nutrition. Karen's Therapy and Nutrition, specializing in EMDR therapy for the treatment of trauma, food, weight, and body concerns, now offering virtual and in-person sessions. Visit therapy. T-H-E-R-A-P-Y dot com for more information or to schedule a consultation today. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show, Nicole Hart, Licensed Professional Counselor and Certified Imago Relationship Therapist, We'll be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, Imago Therapy. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thanks, Noah. I'm happy to be here. So give us a a little more information about your credentials and experience. Yeah, so I'm a master's level therapist. I went to Texas State. Actually, before it was called Texas State, it was called Southwest Texas State University. So way back in the day. That's where I got my uh, master's degree in professional counseling. And that was back in 2001, I graduated actually. So yeah, it's sort of hard to believe it's been 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then it's been, so I guess six years ago, I started the Imago training to become certified and became certified five years. So for the last five years, I've been specializing in or moving towards a specialization in couples work. Cool. And so what is the name of your practice? It's Heart Counseling Services. That's H-A-R-T. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, now, question. I know we were just talking about this. Um, in your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Yeah, so I was on an insurance panel in Austin, the Seton Employee Health Plan, but when I moved, so I recently relocated to Colorado, 
and they only wanted local providers on that panel. So I'm, I'm able to still keep seeing the people I was seeing on that panel, but can't accept any new people. And then I am on a couple of different insurance panels here and they're specific to the county that I live in here, actually. Well, this county and the county next door. And so those are the panels that I'm on. Okay. And do you offer a sliding scale or reduced fee? So that's a bit of a complicated question, but when I came off of most of the insurance panels I was on a few years back, so I transitioned a number of people from insurance to private pay, and I have left those clients. I'm still seeing a number of them, and I left them at a reduced rate or what, what my rate was at the time. And when since then, I've had a fee increase, but I didn't increase their fee because I'd made the agreement with them that I would leave them at at that rate because I, you know, they went from paying twenty dollars a session to paying more than that, and so that is part of what I consider my, you know, reduced fee slots. Okay. And then, yeah, I'm also in process of. Uh, here in the county where I live in Summit County, they have a nonprofit called Building Hope, and they offer scholarship counseling to people in the community that don't have any other resources. And so I'm in process of becoming a scholarship provider for them or cool. maybe one or two of my spots a week. So other than that, I don't offer, like for new people coming in, I don't have a, a set um, sliding scale that I offer. Okay. Do you have weekend or evening appointments available? Not generally. Occasionally, if, if there is a, a real need or an emergency kind of situation, I might squeeze in a weekend appointment. But for the most part, I, am, I work during the week and during the day. Okay. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? It is my first career, although it took me quite a long time to get here. I forget now how many years I was in college, but I went through a few different um, a few different ideas of what I wanted to do. So at first, I thought I wanted to be a vet, and I don't quite remember what steered me away from that. But then I went, actually went to pharmacy school for one year, oh, thinking wow. that I wanted be a pharmacist, but then I worked in a hospital pharmacy over Christmas and spring break. And I realized, oh my goodness, like, no, I need more interaction (laughs) with people. (laughs) And so, yeah, then I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually ended up meeting a family in Austin and moved here to, it was sort of like a, I don't know, I guess you could say a spiritual quest of sorts. And ended up going to UT and then just over the course of some years, ended up developing an interest in biology and psychology and was kind of going back and forth between do I want to do more of a research oriented thing with those two fields, but that also felt not very fulfilling in terms of just having, I don't know, ongoing interaction with people. And so I ended up going the therapy route. And so I really love the combination and learning about how our bodies work along with the psychological piece. And yeah, so that's, I ended up in the therapy field. 
Is is that what you would say is what drew you to being a therapist? Well, I think so. One is just my interest, like an internal interest in how all of that works together. But also I learned uh, over time. Well, actually to back up just a little bit, I found this thing I wrote at the end of high school, which I totally forgot I had written it. But I said that I thought I would want to be a psychologist or a police officer, actually, because I wanted to work with people to solve problems with kind of minimal or vague information. And those two lines of work felt like they would meet that need or desire that I have. So it was it was a desire I had from way early on, although I kind of lost touch with that along the way for a few years. But when I got, uh, I don't know, when the idea came to me of like, oh, I actually, I want to be a therapist. Then I realized that I really have a knack for listening and being with people and helping create a space where they can explore their uh, true thoughts and feelings about things. And I feel that that's very rewarding. And so it's sort of an odd mix of what led me into the field. Some of it I kind of learned as I, as I got more into it, like what my real gifts or strengths were in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you on uh, psychology and criminal justice. Um, I double majored in psychology and criminal justice in undergrad um, and criminal justice. My degree was my emphasis was in policing, community policing, which is, similar but different to the way we see policing done currently. Um, and I would also say criminal justice is kind of like a hobby of mine in a weird way. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Um, I, I love true crime. I'm a sucker for any true crime show. So um, I, I really did it just so I could learn more, you know, about forensics and all those, you know, the law and just all those interesting sorts of things. Oh, that's really fascinating. I'm sure you must have listened to the podcast about the on uh, NPR, the the young kid that was accused of the crime. I can't remember his name right now, but it was super popular. Uh, it would help if I could remember his name. Are you thinking like, of Trayvon Martin? No, it was uh, it was before Trayvon. Um, he was accused of murder and was convicted and in prison and then NPR opened back up the well I don't know that they opened it back up but they revisited all of the uh, evidence his name is just right on the tip of my tongue but I can't <laughs> it's all right if you remember let me know because now I'm interested um, so you know tell us a little more about yourself like what what are your hobbies your interests what tv shows do you watch music do you listen to do you have any pets etc cetera, etc cetera. well so the interesting you brought up pets because just a couple of weeks ago we picked up a new puppy so it's a mini aussie uh -huh. and yeah he's now right about probably nine and a half or ten weeks old and so it's been so much fun and also quite challenging just having a puppy to be, be responsible for. Yeah. And also, oh my goodness, he has such a strong little personality. And so it's <laughs> interesting to me that this little six pound creature can just bring me to my knees. Like, I'm like oh my <laughs> gosh, why won't you listen to me? 
<laughs> been and there, so, been there. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching a lot of videos on trying to curtail his snipping because, I mean, he's a breed that naturally, you know, is very mouthy and has a strong herding instinct. And so I'm, I'm watching a lot of puppy videos right now to try to learn some different things to help him not bite me so much. And yeah, so that's taking up a lot of my time, but I also mentioned, I think at the first that I recently relocated to Colorado. So I'm in the, the mountains of Colorado. And so there's just all kinds of hiking to explore around here and, and to also do a bit of lake kayaking and I'm getting into mountain biking a bit. Ooh. So a lot of new hobbies that I'm exploring. So I enjoy doing those things, especially probably hiking is my favorite. And uh, I also enjoy reading and have a meditation practice that has fallen off a bit with the new puppy, but <laughs> I generally spend a little bit of time every day meditating. And so I have a, an interest in kind of the, the bigger picture of life in a very broad sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I know you use Imago therapy. Um, would you say there's other modalities that you also draw upon? Yeah, I would say a fair amount with mindfulness and like interpersonal neurobiology. I was also in a therapy group myself, a modern analytic slash interpersonal process group for about six years, I guess I was in that group as a participant and then did have done a lot of training with the Austin Group Psychotherapy Society. Very so cool. some of the tenets of modern analytic theory and uh, interpersonal processing, I, I incorporate a lot of those, uh, that theoretical framework, I guess you could say. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So... Let's jump into Imago a little bit. Okay. If you only had the time it takes to have an elevator ride with somebody interested in Imago therapy, what would you say about it or how would you explain it to them? I think I would maybe say something along the lines of, you know how certain conflicts or patterns tend to show up in your relationship over time. And most people can recognize that like, oh my goodness, yes, we have the same conflicts that we seem to recycle through. And then I would say that Imago is a way of helping understand in a very organic way what is the root cause or the root contributor, maybe I would say, to those patterns and conflicts and how you can work together with within your partnership or coupleship to have understanding and healing of those things so they don't keep showing up in the same way. Okay, that makes sense. What does the word Imago mean as it pertains to Imago therapy? Well, Imago is Latin for image, and the developers of Imago, Harville and Helen, saw that we, um, let's see, how would I explain this? We have things that impact us from early on with our early caregivers. So they kind of use that as the, as a correlation of image. Like we have these images that get mm -hmm. imprinted in us 
And then through their research and study of couples over the years, they saw that some of those early experiences tend to show back up in our lives throughout our lives, and in particular in our uh, significant partnership, that there's some things we experienced early on in life that were imprinted into us that tend to show up in different ways through the course of our life. Totally see it. Totally see it. Totally makes sense to me. Um, what, what are the five or, or what are the paradigm shifts and or tenets of Imago therapy? Yeah. So some of the key parts of Imago that at, at the time it was developed, especially these were very different ways of seeing things. I think they're probably more common now, but we see the, the couple the actually the space between and the interaction between the couple and what they bring is holding the keys to moving forward in therapy. So we don't see ourselves as the therapist as like, Oh, we're the people that, you know, know what to do to <laughs> solve this problem. We see ourselves as the facilitator of the, of what we call the dialogue between the couple and that keeping them in this space of dialogue talking together, helping them talk and understand one another in a particular way, that that's where the the solution or understanding will come from, not from us being the expert and, you know, kind of telling them um, where the problem is. So there's that piece and some other key parts of Imago are that we generally see that we're likely to be attracted to someone who initially we're going to think they have these really great characteristics and maybe some things that aren't so natural to us. Like, Oh my gosh, like I could just listen to you forever. And you have such a a free way with words. And then later on when we're in the relationship a while, we might think, Oh my gosh, do you ever stop talking? Like, (laughs) so so the, like some of the initial things that attract us to people will be things later on that we feel aggravated about and what we see is that we tend to cut off parts of ourselves for different reasons when we're growing up and we're going to be attracted to someone maybe that has those parts of us that we cut off and so we're kind of in this dilemma where we feel attracted to it because we used to have that part but we have disassociated ourselves from it for some reason and we kind of want it back but we kind of don't all at the same time And so the process of going through learning and accepting that piece in our partner helps us to learn and accept it within ourselves. So we feel that uh, like accepting them is sort of a way of accepting and loving ourselves too. maybe some parts of ourselves that we have been hesitant to incorporate or we feel a little bit afraid of for some reason. And so we uh, we sell we really celebrate difference in that way. Like it's a, a process of um, celebrating our differences and learning to let each person have their differences, and for them to hopefully not be so scary. Yeah, what you were saying kind of reminds me of like 
the saying, what irritates us in others is what irritates us about ourselves, something like that. Or maybe that's vice versa, I'm not sure, but same kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. It's very much that way. And we, we have a way of helping couples talk about those things through the dialogue that hopefully and ideally, I don't know, makes them a little, a little more tolerable. And, and it's a way of letting each person um, like really let their partner have a different experience from them. Like, oh, mm-hmm. I can actually let you have your experience and it doesn't diminish my experience, actually, even if they're very different. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So my understanding is that according to Imago, we have four journeys of the self. We have the cosmic journey, the evolutionary journey, the psychological journey, and the social journey. So let's start with the cosmic journey or the journey of increasing connection. This focuses on the space between two people in a relationship, which often takes the focus of communication, navigating conflict. What sorts of skills can Imago offer regarding increasing healthy communication and conflict? And as an aside, I, I want to say that I really like the way conflict is framed here in terms of conflict being growth trying to happen. Um, so please tell, tell us more about that. Yeah, so that first journey that you're talking about of the cosmic journey is that we have a belief that we are, all of us have an innate sort of ability and desire to be moving towards a felt sense of of connection. So connection with the universe, connection with our partner, that that we thrive when we are in a felt sense of connection. And for myself, and I do want to say here, Noah, that, you know, like, my that I'm presenting my experiences of Imago right. and a different Imago therapist might have different ideas about this. Right. But so so my idea about how Imago really facilitates this is largely through the process of dialogue that we help couples stay in in the session. And so there's three parts to the dialogue. The first part is mirroring where and that's literally what it is. Like one person listens to the other and mirrors what they say. And then we have two questions that they usually follow up with. The first one is, am I with you or did I get you? And then the second question is, is there more? And so just that part in of itself is creates a lot of connection and safety in the, in the relationship space, because when it's practiced if just a few times, each person begins to feel like, oh, I really can say what's on my mind here. My partner's actually listening. Not only are they listening, but they're asking, did I get you? And then they're saying, is there more you want to say about that? And so it, it's just very inviting and affirming of each person's individual experience. And then after the person says what they need to say and they're, and they're like, yeah, there's no more I have to say about that. Then the next piece for the person that's listening, we call it validation. And that is that the person listening really tries to imagine from the speaker's viewpoint, like, what is this like for him or for her or for this person? And they say, make a statement of, you know, it really makes sense what you're saying makes sense and what makes sense about it is. And they can just pick out maybe just one piece of it that from the 
And this is a little tricky, but it's not from the listener's perspective. It's not like it makes sense to me, but understanding your worldview as I'm seeing it right now, it totally makes sense that you could put that together or that you could see it that way. So there's that validation piece that's a part of the dialogue. And then the last piece we call empathy. And it is simply an imagining what the sender may be feeling as they're talking about this and saying that not an explanation of the feelings, but a, oh, I can see how you might feel sad and scared as Mm -hmm. you're remembering this or talking through this, or you might feel a sense of relief having been able to share this. So it's the mirroring, the validation, and the empathy. And that happens over and over and over again in the Imago sessions. Okay. I see that. Okay. Which, which kind of ties into the next part of the journey, the evolutionary journey, or rather the journey of increasing safety. Can you talk to us about how the brain is involved in this process, as well as the potential responses we may have, such as like maximizing or minimizing? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, so the the journey of safety, we related that back to how the brain works. And so, and we generally think of the three parts of the brain. So it's the reptilian brain, which is the part of our brain that keeps us alive and does a lot of the automatic functions. And it really doesn't evaluate threat. It just lumps things into, is this safe or dangerous? And then it, it helps our brain to react depending on which category it lumps it into. So it's very, the very instinctive part of us. And then the mammalian brain or middle brain or limbic system brain, it helps us to establish and evaluate emotional states and facilitates memory and retrieval. And it is a part of our brain that links, links different areas of our brain It also is more of a kind of gut reaction, like, is this good or bad sort of uh, way our brain operates? Uh And then it's the neocortex or the, uh, the, the, well, the neocortex that helps us evaluate degrees of threat and actually helps us think through things. And so when we're not triggered, our neocortex can help us really be very logical about things and think about things and have reactions that we really want to have. But in partnership, a lot of times when something gets triggered in us, it's our limbic system and our brainstem that have kicked in. And you mentioned the maximizing and minimizing. So just to use that as one example, a, a lot of us in general have a way of responding to something that feels threatening to us. That's either going to be a more outward focused energy. So, you know, like, let's talk about this right now, or let's do something about it. Let's get to the bottom of it. And uh, like an immediate need to take an action. And then the other way is more of a minimizing approach where a person needs some time. Like I just need to, you know, go to the other room and think through this, or I need time to gather my thoughts or I need, uh, you know, an hour break and I'll come back. And so it's interesting. I went to a training a couple of years ago where the guy was showing that there's actually a lot of research now to show that people's wiring in their brains are actually different. And so some people have wiring in their brains and nervous system where they actually 
Like they need that interaction to help their nervous system calm down. Hmm. And some people have very different wiring where they actually need the, uh, the separation to help their nervous system calm down. And so, uh, and oftentimes what we see is people get into a relationship with different, like their opposites. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so one of the things we do in Imago is just provide some education, for example, of, of this is very normal. Like it's not one person is not doing something to the other person or being mean or, uh, you know, just intentionally obstinate. It's just simply the way their nervous system is wired to work. And even just understanding that can be a big help to couples to help keep them from getting so polarized against one another. Cause it, you know, it's real easy to think like, you know, if you're the maximizer and you're like, well, why can't you just stay and talk? Like if we could just talk through this, it would make it so much easier. But in reality, that is causing the minimizer's nervous system to just go haywire. And so we provide a bit of psychoeducation around that. And also just something as simple as for the, for first for them to understand it. And then secondly, to do something like, okay, can we set a timer and come back in an hour? So that gives the maximizer a time frame like, okay, we're not going to just sweep this under the rug and never get back to it. And it holds the minimizer to some sort of accountability of, okay, I, I don't get to just go crawl in my hole and, <laughs> you right. know, think about this for two days and then come back and talk about it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Very helpful. And also I want to note that trauma definitely plays a role in the way our nervous system is wired too. For sure. Yes. And uh, yeah. So can I just say a little bit about that? And yeah, please do. My thoughts about how I see Amago working with that. Yeah. And so, yeah, when, when we have trauma, then we, it, it's typically can be triggered in a lot of the same ways. And then we have a lot of similar reactions that seem to follow from that trigger. And so it ends up be being almost re- um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it gets cemented f- even further. Like every time we have a same reaction, we're likely to have that reaction again. And so one of the things we see in Imago is that we're, we're almost by design going to be attracted to someone that triggers some of our, or actually most of our stuff and some of our deepest stuff and our, initial inclination is likely going to be, I need to get away from this person. Like this is not good. I need to go find a new person that's not going to trigger this. However, if we're in a relationship where both people are genuinely committed to like, let's work through this and let's understand it. Well, then it it goes back to that phrase of conflict is growth trying to happen. So we're triggered But ideally, even if we respond the same way in our day-to-day life, but when we get in the session and we can talk back through what happened, well, the process of the dialogue slows everything down. And we do get back in touch with those feelings we had around the triggering event. However, the response in that moment is different. And that really throws our brains for a loop because 
because our brain is expecting like, oh, oh, here's this thing. I know just how to defend against it. And I know just how to react in a way that keeps me safe. But in the process of the dialogue, a whole different thing happens. <laughs> and what they've shown and the research, I'm thinking here of the book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain, is that when our brain encounters something that's unexpected and positive in the midst of this traumatic memory being triggered, it unlocks the synapses where that trauma was stored and it throws it kind of for a loop and your brain is like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this novel information? And that in that moment, then there's a lot of safety that's created around that traumatic event and then when they come out of the dialogue and the, I think the research shows that those synapses are open for about four hours. And when they close back up and that memory is mm, stored, uh, stored again in the brain, it's now stored in a new way. It's stored with this safety that's associated with it, as opposed to what the general way it's always been stored in the past is, oh, it gets triggered and I have this defensive reaction and it's reinforced. So that all gets um, uh, mixed up, I guess you could say, in the process yeah. of the dialogue. And it ends up to have a feeling around it of safety instead of danger. So really just rewiring neural pathways is what we're talking about. Yeah, that's one of the things I think is so fascinating that, you know, on the surface, it's it, it seems like it might be very simplistic, like, oh, well, like we're just talking and listening to one another. But in reality, it's really quite profound what is happening. Like literally there are literal physiological changes being made in how the brain is wired in that process. And, th and those, especially if they're repeated over time, like they... I mean, they stick and you're, you're literally like a different person. Your brain is different moving forward. And I think that's uh, amazing. And yeah, uh, yeah. totally agree. Um, I know you mentioned a couple, but I wanted to ask to see if there's anything you wanted to add. Um, what strategies does Imago offer for bridging the gap between a person who is a minimizer and another who is a maximizer in a relationship? Yeah, so I don't know that I would have anything particular to add other than that the education piece and then the uh, the timing, mm -hmm. the timing piece. But maybe I would say also we do a bit of coaching to, for example, if the if the minimizer feels like they need a really long break, we might do some coaching to help them kind of shorten. The break so the maximizer is not having to wait so long or vice versa and then also even some individual work of maybe teaching the maximizer some self-soothing strategy well actually it could be both of them like how the maximizer can learn to do some self-soothing while they're waiting and how the person that's more prone to minimizing can have something perhaps in the moment that can help them feel more grounded while they're talking through the, yeah. the conflict or the, the, the difficulty that they're facing. I like that. Regarding the psychological journey or the journey of differentiation and healing, these appear to be based in developmental models um, with four general stages of development. 
what are these stages of development? What happens in each of these stages? And how do they contribute to our growth and development in a relational sense? Yeah, so the four stages that we look at in Imago are attachment and exploration, identity and competence. And I'll just say a little bit about each one of those. So in the attachment stage, we're hoping to internalize a sense of connection and belonging. And some questions might be, like, is it okay to be? Do I belong? Is the world safe? Am I safe in the world? Will my needs be reliably met? And so those, those are some of the key pieces that we're wondering, uh, did they get met you know, early on in life? And then the second one is the exploration stage. And that's more about having a core sense of safety around exploring the world. And so we're kind of asking ourselves at that stage, like, is it safe to explore? Is it safe to go out and then to come back? Will somebody be there to welcome me when I come back? And is it okay for me to, to let go? Like, can I let go of this safe, secure object and come back? And the, so that was the exploration stage. And then the identity stage is, can we be safe kind of trying on different identities? So you might think about how kids tend to do a lot of role play, role play or make believe or pretend play at a certain stage of development to see which one they seem to gravitate towards or which is a better fit. And so we're kind of looking at or asking the question, can I be myself? Can I explore these different parts of myself? Is it okay for me to be different from you? And is it okay for me to be open and flexible and not lose a core sense of myself? And then the last stage is competence. And so that comes around a core sense of feeling powerful or effective in the world. And what we're, some, some of the key questions we're asking here is, can I try new things? Is it going to be okay if I fail or succeed in trying these new things? Is it going to be safe to make mistakes? Uh, can I go after the things I want, knowing that sometimes I may fail and sometimes I may succeed? And can, can I be supported in either of those? Or am I going to um, yeah, be supported to, to go out and try new things in the world? Mm-hmm. And so what we see is, that in our relationships that we are likely to be to have some connection with a partner who has a key piece of wounding in one of those in an area similar to us. And so, for example, if I let's go to the attachment stage, if let's say that I didn't get a lot of good reassurance when I was really little that the world was a really safe place or my needs would be reliably met and I have this sort of deep down question of, am I, am I really safe in the world? Then I'm likely to be attracted to someone who has some level of that same wounding. And I, and as an aside, I do want to say that we definitely have pieces of wounding in all of these areas, mm-hmm. but, but one, maybe one of them is going to stand out more than the others. And so if we see a couple where there's a lot of these questions of like, of, like it doesn't even feel safe to be or to be 
myself, then there tends to be, that tends to be a couple where there's a, a extreme amount of reactivity, like a, a, a ton of like really high emotion. And so part of it for us as a Mago therapist is, I mean, cause that's a lot, it's a lot to be in the presence of a like big, strong emotional reactions. But if we can keep in mind, Oh, like this is the deep attachment wound. You know, it's, it's not like if we can see underneath the big reaction that's happening and then over time, well, for one, create the safety of the dialogue, keeping them in dialogue that settles down some of the reactivity. And then we can do different things with that, maybe through some sentence stems that we give them to, uh, to encourage a sense of belonging or safety with, with between one another, or we might do a bit of psychoeducation to help them understand some things about developmental stages and attachment wounds and that sort of thing. But it, with any of these different stages, it gives us a framework to understand maybe more of what we're looking at so that we aren't so reactive ourselves as therapists. It yeah. helps us provide them with some um, knowledge and education. And then also related to this is this idea of differentiation. And so what we see in the attachment literature development developmental literature is that when people can move through these stages and have some idea of like, gosh, I've not, this is not necessarily conscious, but a feeling of like, I've accomplished what I need to in this stage, then they can feel like they are differentiated from the world around them. Like I'm my own person and yet also feel that, that it's really safe to be connected. And so that's a piece in Imago that we really want to support and encourage is for each person to feel that it's, it's not only is it good, but it's very safe and very natural in a way that we move organically is to become differentiated people and yet feel very safe in connection. And kind of interestingly, I was listening to a, a course this morning on Insight Timer from Dan Siegel, where he was talking about interpersonal neurobiology. And he talked about that like when a system is functioning in its most most healthy way, when our mind is functioning its best, it's fully, the parts of our brain are fully differentiated, yet they're very linked and working together in a good way. And I was like, oh, wow, that's super cool. Like that's exactly what we focus on in, oops, uh, in couples work is like each person is fully differentiated, but they feel super comfortable to come together in connection and also to do their own separate things. Yeah. And I, I'm seeing how all of these, how each of these four journeys is like intertwined with one another too. It's really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. the, the last journey there is to talk about is the, the social journey Tell us about the social journey as it relates to Imago and why this is important to our relationships. Yeah, so the social journey is about moving towards increase, increasing growth and wholeness. And what we look at in the social journey are things like thinking and feeling and be, uh, acting. So we're thinking about our senses. So we generally received information growing up about how our mind 
work, for example, was our was the way our mind worked and the way we thought about things was it valued, or our feeling nature, the way that the fee, different feelings we had were they welcomed or were some of them shut off, and our amount of activity, the way we wanted to move our bodies was were we encouraged to move and explore in different ways or was were we told like don't be so active or that sort of thing. And so what we find is is generally there's at least one area or parts of one area where uh, you know like maybe in a family the the I don't know the the girl of the family may have been very analytically inclined but that may not have been very supportive for like oh that's not a, a field that girls go into <laughs> or something yeah. like that or uh or maybe a person was just a little bit too active and so they end up shutting out shutting down that part of themselves and so we want to well this goes back to what i was saying earlier that we're more than likely to be a attracted to a partner that has some of these pieces of us that we cut off. And I'll just maybe include a little bit of a self-disclosure here that mm, at the first of last year, I, I did an advanced training in Imago called it Characterological Growth. And we were to come up with a part of us that we have trouble connecting with. And then we embodied that character for the weekend of the training. And so my character was joy because I, I tend to have a little bit of suspicion around joy. <laughs> like I, I kind of have a natural sort of like, let's pick everything apart personality and just a free experience of joy feels a little bit alarming to my system actually. And so my character was joy for this training. And the person that I that I ended up meeting and being attracted to and now living with here in Colorado, well, he is just a really super naturally optimistic person <laughs> and moves like very easily towards joy and is kind of constantly focused on, oh, how can we see the best in things and what's good about this situation and like really naturally bringing out the positive things to talk about in situations. And so at first, that was so terrific to me, like, oh my gosh, like he's so positive and he's just so naturally joyful and he expresses that so easily. And now part of my growth that we've been together for a while, is like, oh my gosh, like, does he ever talk about something that's like sad and (laughs) like, I want him to be sad (laughs) or like, let's pick some things apart. And so it, I mean, there's a growth edge for him there, of course, moving in my direction, but my growth edge with him is to stretch myself into more naturally expressing and experiencing joy. And uh, so I, maybe I kind of went off track a little bit from your key question. No, I I think that was, I think that was helpful. So, um, so regarding the social journey, are there, um, so it sounds like it has to relate to our socialization as a whole, right? Um, And like what what we're told is and isn't okay and what's encouraged and discouraged and all all that sort of thing. Um, How does Imago address issues within the social journey? Well, one of the things, and I'll just include a, a specific technique here, is called flooding. And 
We do this in our trainings where there's a lot of people involved, but couples can do it too. And so you would think of in your relationship different, let's see, it's parts of personality that you really like in your partner, uh, actions that they've taken recently or over the course of your relationship that you really like. And um Let's see, part of their, just their character structure that you really like and enjoy. I feel like I'm forgetting one area. Sorry, I don't have that note pulled up in front of me right now, but okay. you have these, these different areas that hit on a lot of these uh, pieces of like how they think about things, how they feel about things, different actions they take. And you, you write down as many positive things under each column as you can think of. And then the, the last column is a global affirmation column, which is like, I, I can't believe I'm lucky enough to be in a relationship with you and you're the best thing ever. And I'm so in love with you. And then you spend, have the, have the person that's receiving the affirmation sit in a chair and the person that's giving the affirmations walks around them and just says all of these positive things in every one of these areas. And it's, it's very uh, affirming, can also be a little bit uncomfortable for people to hear so many positive things uh, coming at them, you know, for minutes on end, <laughs> like all of these wonderful things their partner sees in them. But it's a way of, of maybe bringing back on board some of these things that we may have trouble seeing in ourselves and to hear, hear these things from our partner, especially. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I could see the the walking around thing just immediately immediately made me think of like a shark circling, but like with a love attack. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, friendly sharks, <laughs> friendly loving sharks. Yes. <laughs> but no, no, I think actually that's such a a great metaphor that you use there because you know a part of us thinks, well, this should just feel so terrific. Like, you know, this is such a, such great things I'm hearing, but if our system is not used to that, then it actually is going to feel a little bit alarming to our system. And that can be very confusing to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I can think of of plenty of clients that I've worked with in the past that who would have, who would have issues with that. Um, So are, are there a couple of other examples, maybe, you know, maybe one or two uh, imago-based exercises, exercises that our listeners might try in their relationship that you can offer us today? Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple. So one is something called a appreciation dialogue, and it's just a very short and quick way to be able to give an appreciation. And I don't know if you, would you be open actually to us doing it just a little uh, mini appreciation dialogue between between you and I as an example? Sure. All right. So I will, I will just coach you through it and maybe a little bit, a little bit awkward, but I think that we're going to do great. And so, and I don't know you, I mean, I'm just meeting you for the first time today, but uh, the way the appreciation dialogue works is that I would first check in with you and, and just ask you, Noah, I have an appreciation to share with you. Is now a good time for me to share it? Yeah. And you can let me know. All right. So great. So I'm going to 
share the appreciation. And what I would like for you to do, Noah, is just mirror back to me what you're hearing me say. And so, but give me just a moment here to connect since, uh, let me think about what I want to appreciate you for. So, Noah, I really appreciate the time and energy and effort you're putting into creating this podcast and interviewing all the different therapists that you're interviewing and sharing this information with people in our community and really the world. So you appreciate the time and energy that I put into this project. Yeah. And I knowing a little bit I know about, you know, what it takes to, to be in conversation with someone and to do these kind of interviews. I know it takes a lot of focus and time and energy. It can take a lot of time and focus and energy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. And uh, my experience of inter and in interacting with you is that you just seem really genuine and an easy person to connect with and talk with. Yes, I am. I, that's kind of what I pride myself in being genuine. Yeah. And so, but if you could just mirror, <clears throat> mirror, I'm mirror sorry. That. I forgot. Right. I forgot everything that you said. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. So, so as a, just a little interesting uh, aside there, I went to a training once and this lady said that when, when we get sort of off track there, that there's a, actually what happens is there's a little angel of forgetting that jumps in and she jumps in whenever maybe I need to say something a second time or you need to hear something a second time. So I love that little metaphor. So just popped into my mind that the, the angel of forgetting just popped into our podcast here. <laughs> so, so it gives me great pleasure, Noah, to, to, uh, to reiterate what I was saying that my experience of you is that you're a very genuine and easy person to connect with and talk with. So I'm a genuine and easy person to connect and talk with. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the, the first part of the appreciation is just sharing the appreciation and having the person mirror it. And then the second part for me would be when I have this experience with you at I am left feeling encouraged and uplifted. And then you would mirror that piece too. You feel encouraged and uplifted. Yeah. And then the last piece is for you to just do a summary of the whole thing you heard me say. Okay. Um, sounds like you appreciate the time and energy I put into this podcast. Um, you feel I'm genuine and easy to connect with. Um, and you feel encouraged and uplifted by our conversation. Yes. Yeah. You got it. I remembered it. Yes. <laughs> you did great. I have a, so, a, a tinge of ADHD. So sometimes I, I tend to get off track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's totally fine. We, we welcome getting off track because that that's certainly part of the process. <clears throat> And so we encourage couples to, to do that, you know, ideally once a day to share an appreciation with one another, but for sure to, to incorporate it as a, as a normal thing that they do. And so two things about that. One is 
In Imago, we want to focus, have energy going not only towards what are we struggling with, but also energy going towards what do we appreciate? Because it's so easy for us to get totally focused on the problem and what's not working. And when we get more and more energy being sucked into that, it's hard to go in a different direction. But if we can take little moments out of the day to, to realize like, oh gosh, like actually really appreciated when this happened or that happened. And I want to let you know that then that helps the system not get so bogged down in just the negatives or the problem. And then it's also a way of doing a little mini practice session with the dialogue for the mirroring and the checking in, make sure that, that you heard. And also, I mean, the fact is, is we don't normally take time to share appreciations in that way. Like we might throw out a quick, like, Oh, Hey, thanks for taking the trash out. And, you know, our partner might, may be like, sure, no problem. Or, you know, that it's sort of like we don't really look at each other and it's sort of a passing thing that we throw out, which I, I should really emphasize that in the, the mirror or the dialogue process, we have couples look at, each, look at one another and make eye contact. And so when we ask them to do this appreciation dialogue, we ask them to do the check-in piece, like I have an appreciation to share, is now a good time? And ask them to stop and actually look at one another. And I mean, it's just really nice to hear somebody express yeah, well, a genuine and, to us. And I see how that can facilitate like connection too, which I like. Yeah. Yes, very much. And that that tends to be a, a way that people can practice the dialogue and just little short s- snippets in a way that has a lot of safety. Because ge- generally speaking, while sometimes an appreciation will go off track, you know, mo- most of the time, that's a pretty safe way to practice the dialogue. And so we ask couples to try to incorporate appreciations regularly. And then another piece I would say uh, that we do uh, and it's also along the lines of getting energy going in a positive direction is something called a, a a caring the caring behaviors list and also that kind of goes into a surprise list but we ask couples to share with one another behaviors that feel caring like i feel cared for when you do this or i feel cared for when you do that and then it could be d- different time frames for each couple, but maybe once a week they they pick something off the list and do for their partner. And then that list can also be translated into a surprise list where you share something that would be a nice surprise. You know, it would, it would be a nice surprise if you invited me out to dinner or something like that. And then maybe once a week uh, a person picks something off of the surprise or the caring behaviors list. And so I've heard this presented in different ways in some of the trainings I've done, but the way I've personally gravitated towards is to do them once a week, because for one, it maintains an element of surprise because you don't ever know when it's going to happen. If some 
therapist I know recommending doing them once a day, but to me that can get a little too like almost like have an ex- expectation attached to it too much. Yeah. Whereas if it's just once a like, you know, sometime this week you're going to get a surprise caring behavior or just a general surprise. And that keeps some novelty in it and a bit of the intermittent reinforcement that helps keep it going. And so, yeah, we want to have couples be doing, be putting energy and behavior and effort into things that are positive all along the way while we're working with the things that are more challenging. I like the, this, this last one that you talked about, the, um, the I feel cared for when it seems like having knowledge of like one, like one's own love languages would be helpful in that. Yes, very much so. Actually, that's something I use a lot with couples. I ask them if they haven't done the love languages, I ask them mm-hmm. to pop over to the website and take the quiz. And then yeah, yeah. And use that. Yeah, that's definitely another tool. It's cool. Say along those lines, is that thinking? I mean, I don't know if it's this way in other countries or cultures, but I think in the American culture we definitely most of us have this like this sort of fairy tale idea that if our partner really knew and loved us they would just somehow magically know these things that we need when really it's it's our responsibility to be clear and you know knowing that for ourselves and communicating it and asking for it and so it can be a real relief honestly to just have a list written down of okay here's a list of 20 things that would be really meaningful to me and you just hand it off and then, mm-hmm. and you, then you can add to it over time, but a person then can just look and there's no guesswork. No, they're not guessing wrong or, or having to spend an inordinate amount of energy thinking, well, what does, what does my partner need? It's like, Oh, I just have to pull out this list and pick something off of it and do it. And it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's amazing how there seems to be like an expectation by a majority that our partners just know what it is we want or need. You know, we're not, we're not mind readers. We got to communicate those things. And, you know, that's something I work with my clients on specifically is uh, communicating needs because it's important, but they're not going to get met otherwise. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so talking about you for a second, what do you like about practicing Imago? I really love the process of the dialogue. And what I have seen over and over and over is that it's such an organic and safe way for people to make connections within themselves and then to experience a real meaningful healing encounter with their partner. And it's, it's, I mean, it's something that I'm loosely facilitating, but it's really a process that happens between the two of them. And I mean, it's honestly just so incredible the way it works. It's some, it's still, um, and I've been doing it pretty consistently for five years now, and it's still, it's, it's kind of shocking to me sometimes just what comes up and how meaningful it is for people. And so it, it's, it's like I get to witness this 
a, a miraculous encounter between two people that brings real healing and growth. And it, it's just beautiful. It's a really beautiful thing to get to be a part of and observe. It's a super encouraging. It's, it's like, gives me hope of there's healing happening in our world. <laughs> it's just so terrific. We, like we gives really the, need that. <laughs> gives the skeptic hope, huh? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Enjoy. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's the, there's a lot of experiences of joy that I get to be a part of, which is really terrific. That's awesome. Well, officially switching gears a little bit more now to, to you as a therapist in general, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Yeah, so I haven't had a lot of experience, Noah, working with those populations. I would say the experiences I have had, because of the way Imago is structured and that this center of power, if you will, is within the relationship structure, whatever that may be. I feel those experiences have been really very positive. So it, you know, as I said at the beginning, Imago is really a lot about taking the therapist out of the position of power and, and really focusing on the healing aspect happening in the relationship space. And yeah, so the experiences I have had in those populations, it seems to, Imago seems to work very well for them. Um, a lot of people feel really nervous before they have a first session. Um, what could a new couple expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Yeah, so I have a kind of a general framework that I've adapted or adopted to starting off with couples. And it generally takes maybe the first two to three sessions, depending on how much they have to share around these topics. But the first thing that I take couples back to is, uh, is remembering what it was like for them when they were first falling in love and getting to know one another. And I won't go through all of the, the, the questions and sentence stems I ask, but I, I ask them to think back about how they felt, what kinds of things they, they really like stood out to them and their partner, what things they were attracted to and their partners, some memories around that time and all of this is done in the mirroring framework and so this does a few things one is i don't think it's a great way to start off therapy by jumping right into like this is the big bad problem problems yeah yeah <laughs> and so i i personally want to provide them what is hopefully a pretty positive experience and a positive connection between the two of them and that generally speaking having them remember back to that time in their relationship is usually pretty positive. And so they have a, something that feels good and it helps me get to know some important things that I want to know about the couple that I fit into the Imago framework by these questions that I ask. So it's not just a, a frivolous sort of feel good thing that we're doing there. There is also a therapeutic purpose to it. Um, and I have them, do that in a di in the dialogue format, so they're mirroring one another, and um, so I'm bringing them into that framework right from the very beginning. And it, okay. yeah, most of the time I hear from couples like that one of them is sort of 
not so interested in coming and one of them is more interested in coming or maybe one of them tends to talk a lot more than the other and so what they experience in that first session is oh gosh like we both got equal time and I really do a lot to make that a very hopefully very safe feeling experience and so they are left with maybe for the first time in a long time of them actually looking at one another for an extended period of time and having a very positive and balanced experience of sharing and listening. And so that I would say those are the first, well, well, those are the first two to three sessions. It's pretty structured by me of <laughs> doing something positive as well as exploring their struggle, what they're struggling with in a particular way that also feels pretty safe. And then from that point, moving forward, we usually have a good idea between that and the intake paperwork of these are the areas we're struggling with. And from that point, it becomes much more collaborative in terms of, okay, from what we learned from the first two or three sessions, you know, these are the core areas we want to focus on. And then we, we figure out what that might be, or if something came up in the interim between last session and this session and they're they're saying, oh my gosh, like this big thing happened and we need to talk about it. You know, we need to move off of where we were the last session. Then I'm very flexible after those first few sessions moving forward. Okay, cool. I think that's, that's good for people to know. Um, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? I would say that they feel a real felt sense of safety to say what's really on their mind and really explore their thoughts and feelings in a way that they feel really free to do. Okay. Any particular words that might describe your approach? Ooh, intuitive and collaborative and being in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I can totally see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Yes, absolutely. Now, my favorite question is, how do you define holding space for someone or for a couple? <laughs> That's a great question. Hmm. Let me think about that for just a minute. Sure. How I would describe that. It, it's sort of, I'm finding it's a little bit hard for me to put words to because it's such a felt sense in my body of holding space. So my experience of being in a therapy session is it's almost like I would describe it as an exercise of mindfulness to me where I, like all of me ends up feeling very oriented in the present moment. And when I'm in session with couples and it so me being able to be in that space and to have myself open to different thoughts and feelings that are in the space and to what you know hopefully with the work I've done within myself and training in my own therapy that I have a capacity to tolerate a like a wide variety of different feelings and experiences and so when I can let those kinds of things be present in my system and do my best to stay grounded and present, then I feel like that helps 
the couple to do that same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Yeah, I would say that I don't know that it was a particular advice, but my experience with my supervisor, because of of course, I think for most of us at that time, we're having a lot of questions of our competence and and feeling not very competent, or maybe that we can't trust ourselves very much. And so my supervisor was consistently encouraging me to just really trust myself and my instincts and my intuition. And so hearing that consistently over a you know, two or two plus year period really helped me to internalize that piece of, yeah, it's okay to trust myself in these different kinds of situations. Yeah. Yeah. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I would say definitely it's to have faith in a process. So, so I, I can definitely be a person that wants to, you know, think my way logically to like, let's figure out this issue and get it mm-hmm. solved. And yet, even if, even if I come to a, like an intellectual understanding of some particular thing I'm struggling with, that oftentimes doesn't mean it sinks down into my system or my body. And so this process in Imago, especially in just therapy in general, I would say of being a witness to people and holding space as we were talking about is something that's helped me really trust more in the process side of life. And I think really just a like an organic generosity in life that life will really meet us and help us to have integration and healing when we can just be present, <laughs> present with ourselves and right. present with another, present with life, like to have this, I don't know, trust in life, I guess, is something that, that my experience in being with people and my own therapy experiences, like that's something I've really learned about myself and life in general. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. So when you're not working with couples, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I love to hike. So uh, definitely going out hiking. I'm incorporating some of these new hobbies like the mountain biking and and having the new puppy. You know, he. Oh yeah. Although I don't know that I would consider that self care all of the time, but I, I'm enjoying <laughs> <laughs> hiking for sure. But yeah, I enjoy reading and the rock balancing. I can't remember if we, if we were recording when I talked about that, but I... No, uh, tell us some more about it. Yeah, so I saw a video actually on YouTube some years back of a guy, he, he, he goes by Gravity Glue. And so it was, I was just amazed at what he can do with balancing rocks. Like it, it's very different from just doing rock stacks. It's actually finding some real fine points of balance with different points points on the rocks that you're uh, stacking up. And it is really, a, for me, an extraordinary practice of mindfulness because it sometimes just sitting and meditating for me is really challenging because my mind is so active. But with the rocks, like you 
it's a sensory experience for one, because you're having to feel the, the vibrational and the connecting points in the rocks. And so you have to be very still and connected with yourself to feel those vibrations coming through your hands. And because you have to be so focused on that, for me, my mind is not thinking of all kinds of different other things. And so I actually did something maybe two years back where I did a balance a day for a year and posted it oh, on wow. Facebook and just sometimes would write a little bit about it. And then I branched that off into doing some different workshops with people where I incorporate meditation and journaling. And again, it's just very humbling, honestly, that rocks can, I mean, they can really teach us some pretty profound truths about ourselves. And that for me was just really humbling and a little bit relieving, like, oh, like I can learn something from rocks. It's kind of life-changing. And so I really enjoy uh, taking some time to, to do the balancing and and have a plan to start to do more workshops because I find that really very fulfilling to me in a different way than being one-on-one with couples. That sounds like an interesting couples therapy activity, giving them a bunch of rocks and having them stack them together. I'd love to see what happens in terms of conflict management. <laughs> in <there. Right? laughs> I've actually thought about and have written down on paper some possibilities of doing a couples workshop with rock balancing, but I haven't actually brought that live yet. So if I do it, I'll maybe I'll cool. you an email and say, this is what happened, Noah. <laughs> yes, please do. I'd love to hear all about it and how it goes and like what happens. It's just, that's such an interesting concept. Um, very cool. I love that. So how, how would you define happiness? I know that's a, a big, broad, but also very specific question. Um, what words would you give to it? I think for me, it would be acceptance, like acceptance of the present moment. And okay. yeah, so I think I used to have this idea of happiness as like, oh, it's a, I don't know, it's a particular state of being. But then I feel like that kind of had me chasing after that state a little bit too much and feeling actually a lot of uh, unfulfillment. <laughs> and so yep. what I've been more focused on these last few years, especially, is is trying to just be present with what is. And that there, I don't know that I would say happiness is the word that maybe fits with that a lot of the time, but a sense of maybe fulfillment or mm-hmm. Uh, contentment even mm-hmm. maybe yeah totally yeah to me happiness the the best word to describe happiness to me is fleeting <laughs> you know oh, I love that yes yeah that's a, that's so true yeah and I, and I think a lot of people get caught up in, in what it sounds like you got caught up in you know just kind of chasing after this thinking it's a continual state of being rather than something that is more like transient in nature. Right, right. That it's it, it comes and goes like like every other feeling that we can have. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple more questions. Um, the next two are a little bit vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician? Yeah, so... 
uh, okay, th that's so funny because yeah, I was thinking of, about this and this memory just popped into my mind right now that I had totally forgot about. So I guess, I guess this is the one for me to share, but uh, I was in a, a session and suddenly I started to feel like really upset stomach and I actually ended up having to leave the session and I got sick and oh, oh my no. gosh, I was, I was so, uh, I was just really embarrassed because I felt super out of control and I, I'm not sure what it was if I got like a bit of food poisoning or something. Cause I ended up being sick for like, I don't know, a couple of days, but it just hit me. So suddenly it's, um, you know, here I am in this session and <laughs> with these people and I have to excuse myself and go to the bathroom and come back and tell them like, I'm so sorry, but I, I'm really sick. And I, you know, I don't think I can continue this. And and so it just, I don't know, felt embarrassing and I felt a bit out of control and not exactly sure how to handle the situation because it had never, that nothing like that had ever happened before. So Yeah, that's, that's one of my biggest fears, actually, um, is, is like, is like having, like getting sick in the middle of session, like having to throw up or having to use the restroom really badly, you know, just, it seems, I don't know, just the, the disruption, I hate the idea of that. But I mean, what our body says we got to do, we got to do. We don't have a choice in it. So <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen to me one day. But uh, until then, I'll be grateful for all the days it doesn't. <laughs> right. I like that. If it's any consolation, here I am. I made it through that experience. And, and the clients were actually very understanding. And yeah, I think it was a much bigger deal to me than it was to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Next vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Uh, right at the, well, I'm in process of starting a couple's therapy. And other than that, I'm not in therapy right now. I was in individual and group therapy for about, about eight, between six and eight years. There was some overlap between both of those experiences for me. And I really loved the experience, both of them. I, I loved the combination of doing individual and group work together. I felt it was very powerful for me and really healing in a, a lot of core areas. And before my therapy experience, I was a part of a, a small spiritual group, which there were some posit positives and turns out to be some uh, not so positive aspects of that involvement too, but it certainly involved a, a lot of introspection and uh, personal growth opportunities for me and kind of expanding my way of seeing the world. So for, gosh, from the time I was 20 until last fall, I was in some type of continual, like pretty strong focus of growth uh, growth work. And then last fall, I kind of come to this place where I was like, I think I want to take a short break <laughs> from all of this and just kind of be in life. And with this move that I was where I was going to Colorado and uh, just a, kind of having a different opportunity for, for uh, experiencing life in some new ways, I, I wanted to give myself some space to not be analyzing that all of the time <laughs> yeah well i mean i think i think that's a pretty good indication that you arrived <laughs> you know at least for the time being 
Yeah, yeah, it felt that way. And I and I processed it with, you know, some friends of mine who are therapists and in therapy and and so it it felt certainly scary to decide to discontinue therapy when it's something that had been a you know mostly twice twice a week part of my life for you know eight years. And so but it felt like a necessary part of growth for me and uh just to give myself a chance to experience life in a different way than I had been for quite a long time. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, Nicole, is there anything else you think would be, would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you or Imago? Hmm. Well, I would say just that I love what I do and that it's, it feels like a real honor to me to join couples along a journey where, where they've realized they've either run into something that they're struggling with, or they just want to have a strong foundation. And it, it feels truly like an honor to meet them on that path. And also it's a continual maybe challenge for me to live the, I don't know, to walk the talk. I guess you could say. And so I enjoy it on a, on a number of different levels. And yeah, I guess I can't really think of anything else. Awesome. Well, it's my turn to share my appreciation. I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your knowledge and experience and the, vulnerabil- the vulnerability it takes to do so. So thanks oh. so much for being on the show, Nicole. Thank you, Noah. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Melissa Hargrave, licensed marriage and family therapist supervisor and licensed professional counselor supervisor who will be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, sexual anxiety. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmit.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www. Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.